This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about hiking, shall we? A couple of weeks back, well, a few weeks now, almost a month, the BC government implemented that day pass system for visiting some BC parks and for hiking the trails. They were trying to control the amount of foot traffic because it was getting crazy busy at some of these locations. But what's happening instead? Uh, our Nikki Wrightmeyer is with us now for more on that. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. We've been talking about this story, right, for the yeah. past couple of weeks. So I knew this past weekend when I wanted to go hike the Chief that I'd need to wake up early on Sunday morning at 6 a.m. and make sure that I got my my pass. I didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. I woke up early. I logged into the computer. It was my first time doing it. So I read over all the instructions. And I, I kid you not, by 6.05, I pressed, okay, you know, reserve. And they were all gone. And so I your thought, problem was that you read through all the instructions. Yeah, I guess I should have just skipped past everything <laughs> and just started hitting buttons. I guess I, so. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was crazy. And I thought, I, I mean, I even sent you a screenshot at yeah. 6.06 to say, you know, it took me a minute of disbelief. And then I took the screenshot and said, I can't believe it. You know, it's been five minutes and you're telling me every pass for the chief is gone for the morning and for the for the evening. I checked golden ears now just out of curiosity and the passes there gone as well. I checked gross and most of the passes were gone for there. And I thought, this is insane. It's been five minutes since the reservation system opened for today and all the passes are gone. So this what did, has got to be a problem for, for more than just me. What did you end up doing? We ended up just having to find a different place to hike, which, you know, wasn't the end of the world. You get out and you see something different. I ended up doing Crooked Falls instead, um, up, up past Squamish. But it was really busy. I mean, it yeah. would have been, I guess, as busy as the, the chief would have been. The parking lot was full of people. There was tons of tons of hikers that we passed on the trail. You know, I don't think it's necessarily just solving the problem of, of people not using that that path as much, right. you know, the chief, let's say, it's pushing people to other trails and they're using those ones in a high quantity as well. Hmm. All right. Well, we're going to talk more about this since you've raised our awareness about this. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks, Amy. So we wanted to find out if Nikki's experience was similar to what a lot of other people are going through. So joining us now is Chris Ludwig, president of the BC Mountaineering Club. Chris, good morning and thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Now, are you hearing a lot of stories like what Nikki just told us, people just unable to get day passes? Well, I'm hearing very similar stories that uh, the passes sell out very, very quickly uh, in the morning. Uh, and similar stories of displacement. Our organization maintains a number of hiking trails, especially in Sea to Sky. And so that displacement, when people don't get a pass, um, they, in large numbers, are hikers are turning to the trails. We, we maintain as volunteers uh, in record numbers, and that has a huge impact on the environmental impact of those areas. And some of those areas are not uh, that people are going to are not designed for the kind of numbers we're seeing out there. So what is going on then? Are, these, are, pa- are people really using all these passes? Are they getting up early? Like, what have you heard? 
Well, I've heard, I, I don't know if the, what the actual percentage of use in terms of people who get a pass and then actually hike. Um, I, I haven't seen that data. Um, I, I, it's very unfortunate that as I, I certainly wish I would have seen the software be able to handle bookings many days ahead. That way people could have a little bit more, be a little more proactive in their planning and choosing an alternative location rather than just in a desperate scramble the morning of trying to pick somewhere else to go. Yeah, that is the tough thing there. So how many passes can somebody get when they actually do get through and are able to book something? Um, that actually I don't know the answer to. Um, I know that there are carrying capacity limits set for each trailhead, and they're different. They're at approximately oh, 25% of the capacity that traditionally has been allowed for a given trail, although it, it seems to vary from trail to trail. Say one trailhead, Elfin Lakes will have a certain percentage, and then uh, Rubble Creek will have another, and then there may be another trail, uh, say Singing Pass, which doesn't have any. Uh, caps or limits. Yeah. So this seems to be somewhat of an arbitrary aspect to it. I was wondering too about the 6 a.m. waiting for the day pass things. Wouldn't a lot of hikers want to be up and on the road by then? Well, hiking, especially if it's a group, often we want to plan many days ahead in terms of uh, getting the group, ride sharing, what gear to take, um, weather. Uh, you know, I, myself, I'll make a call whether I'm, my group's going the, you know, the day before based on weather. Um, so it does seem, especially the software doesn't allow um, a cancellation of bookings too, which is un- unfortunate. Oh, so then you can't, if you're not going to go, you can't put it back into the system for somebody else to use it? No. Well, that doesn't seem very good, does it? No, and I, I think it was a kind of a missed opportunity in a way because, um, you know, right, right now in the Sea to Sky, there's a massive overuse. We haven't been building new trail inventory in a very, very long time. Um, so, you know, we're promoting tourism. The number of hikers is increasing at double the rate of the population uh, growth of the GVRD. Um, and right, we're not actually seeing cuts to the park's budget annually, although just small cuts uh, recently. But nevertheless, as we're seeing more people wanting to love the outdoors, there's less money being spent on trails. Uh, so as a result, um, they're just getting left to death yeah. and overused. And uh, it's unfortunate because this pass could have been an opportunity maybe to raise a little bit of money even to put back into the system. Yeah, that's true, right? I'm sure people would have been willing to do that. Any advice, Chris, then for people who want to get out and hike? Um. Yes, go for the day pass. Yes, you know, try to to do your favorite hike in the park, but plan well ahead of time. And make sure you're not just at the last moment going into an area, like some of the ones we we maintain, where you're not properly experienced or equipped. Because I'm seeing a lot of people who are not, uh, say, in running shoes or not fully experienced in more rugged backcountry areas than ever before. Uh, yes, they might have been suitable uh, in terms of their experience and equipment for a well-maintained parks trail. But when they're getting into a rugged backcountry trail because they, don't, they aren't able to get into the parks trail, I'm worried that people are going to run into, uh, get into over their head and over their experience, and right. we may have more SAR incidents. That's, I guess, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That is Chris Ludwig, president of the BC Mountaineering Club, talking about this day pass hiking system, which for a lot of people just isn't working. Uh, You've got a limited number of passes available at at 6 a.m. every day. You can't really book in advance if you want to do that. If you're an early morning hiker, 
pretty hard for you to get out there and be ready to hike at 6am when you can't even get your day pass until then. So still some hiccups there. And I know people were very apprehensive when they first launched. And I wonder if how what your opinion is of it now. Have you tried to use the system? How does it work for you? Are you still trying and you don't like it? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Let's talk about booze. Always popular to talk about that, including the availability. Uh, yesterday, we were talking to Richmond Stevenson MLA and BC Liberal uh, critic for liquor, which is John Yap. We talked to him about the legislation that he had tabled that would allow restaurants to continue doing alcohol delivery with food even after the pandemic is over. Because a lot of these looser liquor measures that we have seen have been the result of a temporary thing that has been put in place by the government. I I asked David Eby once, though, how are you ever going to take this kind of stuff away? And he admitted, yeah, that's going to be pretty difficult if they even do that. So John Yap said, we need to do this permanently. We've seen... So many restaurants and pubs close. The numbers show that about 14,000 closed in the first two months of the pandemic. Now, some were able to struggle through when they were allowed to provide takeout service, and some have reopened. But so many thousands of people whose jobs are dependent on this sector are, are really worried, are waiting to go back to work, and it's important that we support this sector. And this initiative is a needed one to not just support the restaurants, but uh, be a a signal that we're there for our restaurants and pubs. Okay, so we got a lot of response to that yesterday when we were talking about it. And in fact, one of our listeners named Jeff heard that interview yesterday. He actually owns a liquor store in Penticton. Now, he had a chance to talk with our Nikki Reitmeyer, and he said that this idea of loosening up liquor delivery would not be beneficial to his industry. From the perspective of a business owner, beyond a liquor store, how has business been through the pandemic? Uh, things have been trying. Um, we actually shut down for three weeks to retool. Um, back in March, people were not adhering to um, the distancing rules and those sort of things and being a little belligerent to my staff. So my staff were very high strung. So we decided to shut down for a few weeks do the plexiglass thing, limit how many people, that sort of stuff, and just calm everybody down. Since then, things have been fine. Say we've busting sales, but we're we're holding our own for sure. I I know this is sort of unrelated to the reason why I'm calling you, but I'm sorry to hear that people have been rude to your staff. This is something that we've been hearing from time to time, and it's really disheartening. It's awful. It is awful. Everybody's just trying to do their job, and there's people that uh, that don't believe in masks, and there's people that are. So we kind of go to the lowest common denominator, and and uh, we all our staff wear masks for those people that are concerned and are worried. For the ones that aren't, then it really shouldn't affect them, and they shouldn't be making comments about you know it's not us or them, it's all of us. So yeah, that's a shame, though, eh? Well, I suppose I should actually get to the reason uh, why I am calling you, (laughs) which is because yesterday on Mornings with Simi, you heard MLA John Yap talking about how he put forward some legislation that would potentially allow for bars and restaurants to continue doing alcohol delivery with food delivery, alcohol takeout with food takeout. And as a liquor store owner, you called and you said, hold on a second here, this might not necessarily be a great idea. Uh, What's your perspective on this? I think these are tough times, and that's definitely um, a tough business to be into at this particular time. I have 35 years of experience in hospitality, running everything from bars to restaurants to nightclubs to family entertainment parks. So I understand the business very well um, before I got into the liquor store business. So my heart goes out to those people. We live in a tourist town here, and, and I mean, that's uh, bread and butter for a lot of these people. 
So, I mean, anything that, that can be done to help them with their bottom line is a good thing. Unfortunately, sometimes you have to take from others in order to, to do that. And I think the sales of liquor takeout food is, is something like that. It's not like you're creating new drinkers. You're actually just taking away from the businesses that are catering to those drinkers. I totally understand. And that being on a temporary basis, for sure, let's share the business. Let's you know, help everybody out. But as far as being a permanent um, thing, everybody needs to be in their own lane. Um, we, uh, it was bad enough when grocery stores were able to sell liquor. Uh, we're not allowed to sell groceries, but they can sell liquor. Their model is based on food sales to make a profit, and liquor is just a bonus to them, right? And so everybody's kind of picking away at this. Um, I'm glad to see that they lowered the cost of liquor for bars and restaurants for purchasing. That should have been done a long time ago. The whole uh, business, however, Mr. Yap was saying yesterday that the liquor stores are now able to sell to the bars and restaurants. That's not true because we buy at the same um, level that they do. So we can't mark up our product. They wouldn't buy from us. So there's no sales there. And the government is still, even though there's no events going on, they're still not allowing us to sell to, to special events, you know, weddings or parties of any kind. Yet they're still willing to give away our little bit of the business. Um, another thing, what are the limitations on this delivery of alcohol? Am I able to now go open up a restaurant myself, just sell French fries and make liquor my full-time business? Really? Um, I'd sell you some fries for a buck and I'll sell you the liquor at cheaper than the liquor store can get it. That's a good point. Is there a rule here that stops people from potentially running a liquor delivery business disguised as a food takeout service? Exactly. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for reaching out to the show. I really appreciate you sharing the the other perspective on this. So thank you so much. Appreciate it and best wishes. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. That is Jeff. He owns a liquor store in Penticton. He was listening yesterday when we interviewed John Yap, the BC Liberal critic on liquor and gaming, who had tabled some legislation hoping to make permanent the changes that we have right now in liquor delivery and the kind of the ease with which people can just order booze and cocktails online. Jeff, not exactly on board with that. Doesn't think it's a great idea. He says it wouldn't be great for his business. But how do you feel? about that. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. I know people, I my overall feeling, I don't even drink, but I'm thinking people like this. They love the ease with which they can order this. The world has not necessarily ended. And I think to take it away from people now would be a whole lot harder. But you let me know how you're feeling about this. Email me or give a call to our bus. All right, let's talk about BC Ferries. This has been a very difficult time for BC Ferries. We know they've had reduced capacity. They're you know losing money, essentially, but they're still operating. But there's been talk of a bailout. But who gets that bailout? Where do you get it from? Do you get it from the federal government, the provincial government? Well, there is word that perhaps a federal government bailout is coming. Rob Shaw with the Vancouver Sun has written about that. He's got a story out this morning that you might want to check out in the paper, but he's also with us now to talk about it. Good morning, Rob. Hi, Simi. Okay, so what did you find out? Yeah, so there's going to be an announcement this morning from the federal government and the B.C. government uh, that essentially uh, says that B.C. Ferries is going to be eligible for the same federal bailout money that TransLink is able to get right now and BC Transit is able to get right now. And it's matching dollar for dollar federal and provincial money uh, to help with the operational, um, you know, revenue declines from COVID-19. So ridership drop-offs, 
their box drop-offs, that type right. of thing. And um, I'm not expecting to hear an actual amount because we still don't know what the amount TransLink uh, is going to get. Um, everyone's kind of trying to figure out the details. But we know there's a pot of money, around $540 million from the feds, that will then get matched by the province that will be eligible for the BC Transit bus service, the TransLink SkyTrain and SeaBus system, and now uh, the BC Ferry system to try and stem the bleeding uh, on their uh, on their financial sheets right. uh, from the pandemic. So they are eligible. Does that automatically mean they're going to get it? Well, I think Premier John Horgan has been raising this issue with the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister for months now. Because the NDP is very sensitive about ferries. A lot of their MLAs represent yeah. coastal communities. So they would not be having an announcement this morning with the, one of the federal ministers, the Minister of Environment, Jonathan Wilkinson, if uh, ferries wasn't going to get anything. It, but what it is saying is you're, you're, you're allowed to take advantage of this money, BC Ferries. And up until this morning, we didn't know that. Ferries was off on its own, had no aid from anyone. Uh, at the exact amount that it's going to get, um, that is going to be interesting because we know that TransLink on its own um, could eat up, you know, between $500 million and a billion dollars, yeah. depending on its losses. So you add in BC Transit, what's left for uh, ferries? That I don't think we're going to see those numbers this morning. We're just going to see um, sort of a lifeline for ferries that, um, that, that something's on the horizon. Right, because you mentioned like they have kept a tight lid on the fin- actual financial problems that they're having. But I understand the BC Green Party is saying, listen, we need to do something more than just bail them out. <laughs> yeah, the Greens have raised the idea, the perpetual idea of uh, bringing ferries back into to government. So <laughs> okay. this, yeah, it goes, it goes on and on. Remember, ferries used to be in government. The Liberal previous Liberal government spun it out in 2003, I think it was this crazy sort of system where it's a private company with one shareholder, which is the province. And the real point of that um, was to get BC Ferries debt off the books. So when it builds new ships and it goes to upgrade terminals, it accumulates debt that the province doesn't want sitting there squeezing out hospitals and highways and other things that it's going to build. So there's about a billion, almost a billion uh, four in debt sitting on the ferries uh, books and this idea from the Greens is if you bring it back into government, well, then you'll have to fund it like highways. It won't be a question of letting BC ferries just kind of wither on the vine during difficult periods. You're going to have to put the money in. But uh, the NDP, which used to love to talk about this issue in opposition, yeah. um, has not done that in government because they realize it's a very complicated, expensive proposition. So I think the Greens are raising it, but they're kind of doing what the NDP used to do in opposition. They're bringing this idea up and saying it's a good idea. And then once you get into government, though, that idea doesn't go anywhere. That's always the case, isn't it? Um, do you get the feeling, too, that with, not just with the Greens, but the other parties, that everyone's kind of testing things out right now for perhaps stuff that they're going to run on? Yeah, you get a little bit of that. I mean, the NDP uh, on ferries, um, they just want to keep people happy in the coastal communities because it's, they've, you know, scored so many points on this issue over the years. Every time the Liberal government cut back sailings and routes, uh, the NDP MLA is led by Claire Trevena, who lives on Quadra Island and is now the transportation minister, which is light their hair on fire. And you can see how sensitive it is because it was just a couple months ago, BC Ferry said, we're going to cut some, just some like late night, early morning sailings on 11 
minor routes, you know, Quadra, Texada, yeah. Salt Spring, Denman, Hornby. People were furious, and the uh, the government got this big blowback, and it had to come up with some money to stave off those cuts just on its own. So it, people are kind of posturing. I, I think as long the NDP's goal is just to keep ferries floating, keep rates from going up, um, keep the routes from being cut back, and they don't particularly care how much debt ferries runs up because it's not on the provincial books. Just keep the rates down and the ships sailing, and that'll be good enough for their MLAs in an election. All right. We'll wait for the announcement this morning. Rob, thanks for talking to us. Okay. Take care. Have a good day. That's Rob Shaw with the Vancouver Sun. Of course, uh, you can check out his full article on this at their website, VancouverSun.com, and you'll be hearing more about that announcement today right here. So we all keep a close eye on those COVID-19 numbers these days, right? We're averaging about 44 new cases a day, much more than we were seeing a few weeks ago. Still wary about the next week or two as well because of the BC day-long weekend. And I'm just wondering, you know, are are all the warnings and all the discussions we've been having actually having an impact with people? We keep hearing about parties and gatherings and all of that. And then comes this. It's a new forecast model for COVID-19 progression that suggests that if If we continue on the path that we are on right now, we could see an even greater spike in the virus. We wanted to talk more about this modeling and what it means. So joining us now is Dr. Sally Otto from the UBC Department of Zoology. Dr. Otto, thank you very much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. So how did you develop this model? What does it look at? This is a a model actually by my colleague, Carolyn Colleen, at at Simon Fraser University and other people that in this group of modelers that are looking at um, COVID. So in this particular model that Dr. Colleen did, she um, used probability analysis to look at how many cases we have per day and then go beyond a day and go into the future. Now, the key thing about COVID is that the future depends on how we behave. This isn't just about Mm -hmm. the biology of virus spread. It's really about what do we do in reaction? I find that sometimes that's what people forget about these models, right? Is that exactly. the people forget that, no, no, we can change the outcome. It's just, this is just based on what we're currently seeing with our behavior. Exactly. And that's what then um, Carolyn's team then says, well, if we keep with what we're doing right now, what will we see in the future? But if we make the decision to bend the curve down again, what would we see? So her her predictions, and they line up with my analysis too, are that we're basically doubling every 20 days, maybe a little less. So we saw 50 cases on average recently. and But if we keep doubling, that means 100 cases a day by the end of September and 1,000 cases a day by the end of the year if we keep along this trajectory. So that's if we don't do anything different from what we're currently doing. Okay, so that is continuing along with these stories that we're hearing about parties and people getting together and things like that. Right. So what would change that model? Yeah, so the um, model will change if our behavior changes. And the key thing is how much do we restrict our movement and restrict our contacts with others? And so if we can get those movement rates down, then there's some hope um, to bending the trajectory down. And so uh, if you remember, Dr. Bonnie Henry was suggesting that we could keep this under control with uh, about 60, 65% of our normal activities. Um, And we're pretty much close to our normal activity rates. And so the model suggests, again, that if we bend down to about 65%, 
67% in the model, that we would um, bend the curve back down and not continue to see this rise. Right. You think that people went from 30% to 80%? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So they kind of forgot the signal. So what would that look like? What do you think we would have to stop doing to get back to that 60 65%? You know, I don't want to make it sound like we're not doing anything. I am seeing more and more masks when you're walking down the sidewalk. People are really aware of their space and trying to to do the two-meter spacing between people. So I know a lot of people are working really, really hard on this. Um, I think the, the... we got a little complacent because there was very little community transmission, and there truly was very little. The problem we have in BC is we're always going to have new introductions of this virus. Yeah. Um, across Canada in July, there were 200 international travelers that came to Canada with COVID, and we're always going to have those sparks. So when we what say happened? international travelers, though, is that people coming home, or is that people like, you know, people like to think that we're not allowing people in, but clearly some people are coming in. Uh, yeah, it could be people coming home. It could be there are you're allowed to visit family, and there's business reasons um, that you can come in the country. Right. So, but you know, I don't want to blame those, and, and I don't want to blame anybody. But every case that you have gives risks to those people around them, and then the people around them. And so, what we've seen recently, though, is we get those little sparks, and normally you can isolate them. People stay at home. You can do the contact tracing. But it's, it's like, imagine a spark with fire. And what we're seeing with these parties is that it's like a big gust of wind. It's taking that little spark, those little fires, those viruses, and carrying them now to different parts of the city and then different parts of the province. So at this point, we're seeing lots of sparks kind of being blown by the yeah. gusts of these party winds to different parts of the province. Now, what about back to school? Does the issue of back to school factor into the modeling at all? Um, the, not specifically, other than through the kind of number of contacts that we have per person. And so schools will potentially increase the number of contacts. They could potentially decrease it. We, um, you know, for certain age groups of kids, they may actually have fewer contacts if they're inside a classroom than they are when they are out and about during the summer. So that hasn't been explicitly modeled in this model. But it just sounds to me, Dr. Adelaide, and the reason why we wanted to talk about this as well, is I feel like people have forgotten that that we still have work to do here. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, uh, the numbers are such that we are at the same, we have more cases now, active cases, 445, than we did in the mid-March when we started the whole closing down restaurants, closing down schools. We only had 250 at around that point. So that's that's how important it is for people to realize, okay, we're getting community transmission now. We really have to act. Right. Uh, clearly from what we've seen in New Zealand, you can't get rid of it completely, but isn't how you react to the cases the important thing? Yes. Yes, that's absolutely. We And we bent this curve before. We can do it again. We just... We have to. We cannot pretend that we've already done it. We haven't already done it. The, we've never really had a first wave in British Columbia. We, we never got that many cases here, and so we're in order to keep our good track record. We really have to um, limit our activities. And what I would really ask is, if there are any teens out there or young people, twenties, thirties, help. Um, 
spread the message on social media. Figure out what works with your friends to keep your parties small and outdoors, to keep them distant. Um, I don't think it's necessarily going to, it's going to take teamwork and it's going to take young people helping us out. And do you think that's that message that we have not yet gotten through to? That's right. I'm not sure. There's a certain um, uh, complacency or laissez-faire. And I, 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 you know, I have a teenage son. I know how hard it is for people that age to, to be both hemmed in and to feel like life is stalled and they're not meeting people and all of these um, kind of really um, existential issues that they're struggling with in a life of a, in a pandemic. So I fully, fully understand. That's why I'm asking and, and reaching out to them to help us. All right, Dr. Otto, thank you so much for this this morning. You're welcome. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So we just had a really fascinating discussion with Dr. Sally Otto at UBC talking about this new COVID-19 modeling that they've been doing, showing that if we stay on the track that we are on right now, if we keep having the same contacts, going to the same parties, doing the same things that we have been doing, that we are going to see a serious spike in cases. That's like really a good warning to people out there. And of course, being outdoors, getting together with friends, that is something that we have really seen an increase in since the bars and restaurants opened once again. And now we have this idea of drinking in public places. So Vancouver, of course, after a torturous process, it seems like, uh, allowed now people to drink alcohol in a select number of public plazas. And yesterday was actually the first day that you were able to do that. And of course, people were marking that occasion. How did it go? Well, our Nikki Reitmeyer went to an event that was held at that Cambian 17th Plaza last night. Uh, there was a, quite a bit of a party going on there. Local historian Aaron Chapman read excerpts from his books that focus on Vancouver's old liquor laws to a gathering of about 25 people who were well socially distanced from what Nikki could see there. And at the event, Nikki spoke with Rania Hatz, executive director of the Camby Business Improvement Association. So this is the first official event since this legal drinking's been allowed in plazas. How did it go? We think it went well. This was the first day and we wanted to set the pace to let people know we could do all sorts of things, not just a party. People think alcohol, think party. Well, we think alcohol is just another drink you can enjoy with friends and neighbors outside, especially right now when people don't have patios to sit at, some people in condos, some people are in basement suites and they don't have anywhere else to go. Um, book clubs, <laughs> we know are actually covers for wine and they don't have anywhere to meet. So we wanted to set the pace and say, come on out, let's listen to a little bit of history about liquor in Vancouver and the laws and grab a bite from a local merchant, local restaurant, grab a drink from a restaurant or one of the beer and wine stores and come on over. As a representative of the Canby BIA, how do events like this plazas like this and, and rules like this where you're allowed to drink in public how does this 
benefit or cause issues for local business? I think this is great. I think it's um, the local businesses have been very supportive and they want to see plazas like this. They want people to feel good in the neighborhood. They want them to stay in their neighborhood. And I think with you, if you look locally, shop locally, dine locally, have a place to go locally, you don't have to hop on a bus. You don't have to go across town. You can just enjoy your neighborhood. So will you be doing more events like this in the future? Um, we've actually been doing them every sunny day, every sunny afternoon. Tomorrow we have a Celtic band. Playing. Wow. So the catch is we don't do anything amplified. We don't use any electricity. And for green reasons, we're not using any generators. So all the musicians and the bands that we've had so far have had to rely on things like um, the really strong vocals or stand-up bass, a fiddle, a saxophone, drums, things like that. So tomorrow's Celtic music if you'd like to come out. On the weekend, we had a really good um, Latin drum piece. So we have all sorts. We've had Afro-Caribbean, you name it. For people who don't have events like this happening in their community, and they're wondering why, a part of that is that, and I didn't realize this because I thought it would be the city who would cover some of these costs, it's the Canby BIA who's covering the costs of everything associated with this event. I'm assuming the whole surrounding the fences and everything plus permits okay so it's very expensive to maintain these plazas and we're grateful that the city passed the rules that it did and grateful that the city has given us the space but the cost of the furniture the maintenance the cleaning the upkeep the activation of events everything else it belongs to the BIA so the merchants locally are paying for this and they really appreciate the support if you can give it the city provides the space and the permit that it and we're grateful for that but everything else does add up um, and last question are you happy with how the city's how you your partnership with the city has been so far is there room for improvement uh, the city has been great the city departments have been really great this is it's, it's been wonderful I think it's uh, something new for city staff so that's exciting for them too and I think sometimes you get into a routine of always saying no 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 to permits and suddenly you're given this free uh, reign to do new things so it's been wonderful if you want to know what this cost us so far for the two plazas here we're only halfway through the summer we're up to $30,000 already so that's a lot of money for the merchants that weren't uh, selling anything for months so we really appreciate any support we get now this next story is a really fascinating phenomenon a side effect of what we have been seeing in the COVID-19 pandemic and certainly one that no doctors or researchers saw coming fewer babies are being born prematurely during the pandemic. And they're trying to figure out why that is the case. What is the cause of that? So we're talking more about this now with the help of our guest, Marilee Brockway, who's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Manitoba's Azid Lab. Marilee, thank you very much for being here. Hi, Sammy. Thank you for having me. I find this so fascinating. How did we see this happening? How did we realize that this was going on? Well, it's kind of been in the works for a while. Um, Originally, early on in the pandemic, we saw an article come out of The Guardian in Europe saying that um, air pollution reduction was um, resulting potentially in a reduced number of deaths in Europe. And that kind of tweaked our interest. And then um, here, I'm actually working in Calgary physically, and we have a community milk bank here that serves NICUs or uh, neonatal intensive care units across the country. And they noticed that their orders for milk had declined considerably. And so when our director started calling around to see why, um, they were saying, our NICUs are not full here. We don't need to order the milk, which kind of piqued her interest. 
And then along that time, doctors were starting to notice that um, the preterm birth rates in their hospitals were, were lower. And then we started to see some evidence coming out in the literature uh, with preprints, which are important to note that those are kind of put out before the peer review happens. Mm-hmm. And we saw a preprint from um, Denmark and a preprint from Ireland showing that Denmark had a decrease of 90%, uh, or a decrease of 90% in their preterm birth rate. And Ireland had a decrease in 70% of very low birth weight infants, which is also an indicator of preterm birth. That is an astonishing number. It is. It was quite phenomenal. So, I mean, we have to reiterate that this has not been peer-reviewed, but it was enough for scientists to start going, okay, wait a minute, this is a really interesting trend we're seeing, but we have to look at this more systematically. So, um, actually, Twitter brought us all together, (laughs) and we started building a conversation on Twitter, and myself and Dr. Megan Azad. Uh, who is my supervisor, um, also coordinated with Dr. Dave Bergner out of Australia, who has done large multinational studies. Um, So we're coordinating quite a large effort to look at this uh, phenomenon more systematically across the world. Right. So what do we classify as a premature birth? So preterm birth essentially is any baby born before 37 weeks. Okay, so that would obviously save a, a, a lot of expense, a lot of heartache for parents as well, because it's very stressful. Do we know, do we have any idea, or do you suspect why this is happening? We have a few ideas. Now, the first thing we really need to uh, figure out is if this reduced rate is indeed due to babies extending to full term, so going, or pregnancies going beyond 37 weeks. Or if there's another phenomenon happening where we're seeing intrauterine fetal demise or increased numbers of stillbirth. So there have also been two papers published recently, one just yesterday, that are showing that we are seeing increased numbers of stillbirth. So that's going to be the first question that we need to answer. Right. I I think back to things like heart attacks and strokes, and we were worried that people who had those minor symptoms of those things weren't going to emergency rooms during the lockdown. Exactly. So once we answer that question and do determine, you know, are we seeing a reduction in preterm birth rates or are we actually seeing an increase in stillbirth, we can look at that. And of course, if we're seeing increases in stillbirth, it would be likely due to um, families not seeking care as soon as they normally would because of barriers to access. But if it is truly a a reduction in preterm birth rates, we're thinking it could potentially be to a variety of reasons. Of course, the biggest one uh, that's uh, getting a lot of uh, coverage right now is the fact that moms are not being forced to work regular hours late into their pregnancy. Um, And I've been hearing some really interesting stories from moms lately since we've been posting more information about this, about the long hours they've had to work right up until the day they gave birth. Um, So it could have something to do with that. Yeah. Uh, Some some other things we're looking at are um, reductions in air pollution because we've all seen the news that have showed showing significant reductions across the world of air pollution during the lockdown. And there's really strong evidence to show that air pollution can uh, trigger preterm birth. There's a correlation between the two. And then the other thing we're looking at is um, the potential that there's, because moms are not out or we're being much more sanitary, um, we're not getting increased or exposures to other infections like um, influenza or whatever else might be out about 
because infections can trigger preterm birth as well. Right. So I guess now, I guess the key is to find out what did happen and whether or not we can like use that to our advantage in the future. Exactly. So we could have, um, coming forward, we could have information if we are continuing to lock down or if unfortunately we have another pandemic, um, we would have information as to what barriers of care may have done to the birth rate, uh, be it positive or negative. Um, If we do find that we have seen a reduction in preterm birth and we find some reasoning such as air pollution or um, maternal workload, we can work with government and have evidence to show that, wow, these, these factors do contribute to preterm birth. And these are some things that we need to look at as a society or as a government or as a healthcare system to improve our preterm birth rates. Right. Because, you know, before all of this happened, it just seemed like preterm births were becoming fairly common. So the preterm birth rate around the world is about 10%. And it is the biggest cause of infant mortality worldwide. Here in Canada, we hover around the 8% mark. And um, countries, um, lower and middle income countries tend to have higher preterm birth rates. And uh, higher income countries tend to have lower. That's a generalized statement. Um, And another interesting thing that I've found in doing the background research for this is uh, countries such as Japan and Croatia actually have a prenatal maternity leave. So moms are able to go off about six weeks before they're due. And those countries have preterm birth rates of around 5%. So it could be something that is a a factor. Interesting. Okay. So then, Marilee, how long do you think before you'll be able to get some concrete evidence or get a good look at the numbers here? Uh, It's a good question. Um, We're hoping and we're trying to figure out exactly um, the timeline we want to look at so that we get a good comprehensive look at the data So we're hoping by late fall, early winter, we'll have some preliminary data to give us an idea of the trends. And it would probably be a pretty rough and dirty analysis just to see what's out there. And then we'll we'll go in and do a much more sophisticated analysis, really picking apart um, things that could be contributing to it. All right. I look forward to hearing more. It is fascinating. Marilee, thank you so much. Thank you, Simi. That is Marilee Brockway. She's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Manitoba's Azad Lab. They are looking at this really interesting phenomenon that has happened during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that is fewer babies are being born prematurely. And this is something that has been noted all over the world. For instance, even in the city of Edmonton, they noticed a 20% drop in premature births in their hospitals. Uh, Same as in places like Halifax, even larger over Overseas, countries like Denmark and Ireland saw 80 to 90% fewer premature births, that is, babies born before 37 weeks gestation. And so they're trying to figure out what has caused this and can we use that information moving into the future. You've no doubt been hearing in the news in the last 24 hours about a hunger strike that is going on in front of the BC legislature over in Victoria. Our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak with Nadin Abenez, who works at the Hyatt Regency or worked there for 12 years. She's one of the strikers who has been fasting since yesterday. How has life been for you since the layoff? Um, it's actually been challenging and I'm struggling. It's very difficult for me. I mean, my lifestyle changed uh, drastically. It's overwhelming. My anxiety uh, level and the stress just uh, gone up to the roof. Summertime, it w- would be the busiest for us at the hotel industry. But now, um, 
Hotel open June 10, only only 15 people out of 350 were recalled to work. Yeah, so you're in Victoria for the hunger strike at the legislature. How long has it been since you last ate? Um, I would say uh, yesterday. And how are you feeling? Uh, yesterday was really overwhelming. I was very emotional and a little bit lightheaded. It just hit me right at home hard. Uh, I was really emotional, kind of crying. I fear that, you know, the unknown and everything, everything that was going on, the, the serve is ending, the rent supplement is ending. Financially, I'm, you know, struggling. So that is Nadin Abenez, who is one of the hunger strikers in front of the B.C. legislature. So now they've officially entered day two of the hunger strike. And these are hotel and tourism workers. They're demanding help from the government. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Michelle Travis, who is a spokesperson for Local 40. Michelle, thank you very much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Now you want, they definitely want the government to help, but in what way? What would make a difference here? Uh, yeah, so the fasters uh, have uh, launched an open-ended uh, hunger strike because they really want to put a spotlight on the crisis affecting 50,000 hotel workers across the province, uh, many of whom have been laid off since mid-March. And what what they're asking the government for is to ensure that workers have a legal right to return to their jobs as the industry recovers. And, and what that means is, um, I think of it sort of similarly to an eviction, you know, providing protection for folks who uh, would be concerned about eviction um, for months you know there's been a ban on that making sure that folks don't get uh, don't lose their apartment don't lose their uh, ability to uh, do business in their uh, in their office uh, we would like to see something similar for workers um, if you were affected or laid off from your job uh, because of the pandemic we want to ensure that workers have a legal right to be first in line to get their jobs back and provide some basic level of protection for workers mm-hmm. so that they can return to their jobs when the industry recovers and we know it's going to be a while before it recovers. Now, Michelle, wouldn't some of those protections already be in their union agreement? You know, it's, it depends. Uh, so whether you're union or non-union, a lot of workers are going to be in the same boat here. Um, for union agreements, you have certain, uh, you have several months of uh, protection around recall. But once that expires, you're in the same boat as a non-union worker. And what we've seen with non-union workers at places like the Pan Pacific or the Shangri-La, we've seen mass terminations of, of, of laid-off workers uh, before the hotels have had a chance to recover. Um, and what those workers who were terminated wanted was to say, look, we, we know the business is hurting right now, um, but when the business gets better, we want to be able to come back. We're, we don't want you to fire us. You know, if that means we have to go, uh, you know, work somewhere temporarily, right. temporarily, if we can find another work, we'll do that. But we want to come back to these jobs because many hotel workers have done this work for years. Uh, as you heard, Nadine has worked in the Hyatt for 12 years. Uh, many of our coworkers have been there longer, up to 20 years. Um, once those, once those, uh, for union workers, once those rights expire, they are in the exact same boat as uh, non-union workers, and that's why we're saying this affects 50,000 workers across the province. Right, and so what is the state of that industry like right now in terms of hotels, let's just say in Vancouver? Are people returning? Are they being asked to go back to work? Uh, some have gone back, uh, so, but it's a small number. 
Um, so about 90% of the industry was laid off in March. Some have been called back in the uh, as they reopen in the summer. Uh, many hotels didn't reopen until June. But the, occupant, the hotel occupancy, the business, uh, is very quiet right now. Um, you, you might see some exceptions with some resort properties, but that's going to change once uh, the fall hits. Um, and really what they're seeing in terms of occupancy, you know, 20%, 30% of hotel rooms are full versus what you would see in a normal year uh, where it would be 90% uh, booked, right? And so we... And what the industry is saying, it could take until 2021, 2022 for the industry to recover, particularly given restrictions at the border. We don't know when that's going to be lifted, you know, crossing the border with the United States, ongoing uh, travel restrictions internationally. Mm -hmm. There's also the restriction on meeting sizes, which means there won't be conventions, um, large meetings. And that's a that's an important part of the business in the fall in particular. So Um, so it's going to be some time before it recovers. Okay, so then how long will the protesters stay at the BC legislature or is it just open-ended? It's open-ended. Uh, they will be in Victoria throughout the week. They'll be there next week. Uh, pastors are planning to uh, continue their action until uh, we see some action from the province. Right. But that, I mean, they keep saying there's going to be some kind of package coming. Uh, are you concerned though, that it won't be enough for the actual workers? You know, we, we're not sure what to think. Um, we know that the tourism sector has come to the province to uh, ask for $680 million in bailout relief. What we haven't heard is how the province intends to address the needs of the workers who are asking something that doesn't cost anything. Uh, what they're asking for is like, look, we just want a right to be able to go back to their jobs when it's time. You know, province, you know, we need you to act on that. And sure, there's a right for, you know, all 50,000 hotel workers to, to be able to go back when it's time to go back. Right. How are you going to address that? All right, Michelle, thank you very much for that. Thank you. That's Michelle Travis, spokesperson for Local 40 in the hotel and tourism industry, representing quite a few hospitality workers. A number of them are on the legislature lawn right now. They're having a protest involving a hunger strike, trying to raise awareness. Uh, they're saying that they need more help from the government. They want their, the government to provide uh, more financial assistance and more job security. I want to talk about a unique project now that we heard about. It is the largest ground mount solar project in the Lower Mainland, and it is currently underway at the Tsleil-Waututh First Nations Administration Building over on the North Shore. Let's find out more about it. Dennis Thomas Hunok joins us now, Senior Business Development Manager with the Tsleil-Waututh Nation Economic Development Office. Dennis, thank you for being here. Yes, thank you, Cindy. Thanks for having me. How big is this solar project? Well, yeah, well, just based on the photos and the renderings, it looks like it's going to be really nice and it's going to be a nice feature for our new administration office. Okay, and what's it for? Like, what is the purpose? So the purpose of, uh, of the solar array project is to help offset all of the energy consumption used by our new Slavitic uh, Nation administration office. It's built to lead gold platinum standards. And one of the goals that uh, my chief and council were inspired to to produce uh, probably like four years ago in the preliminary drawings was to to see how we can utilize renewable energy to be an example to uh, local neighborhoods, Vancouver, but also support the climate change initiatives that our nation is doing. Right. And why solar? Because we often debate solar right here in Vancouver where it can be so cloudy. Why go with this particular project? Yeah, well, we tried many years ago. Uh, we had a slow nation wind, uh, uh, wind turbine, sort of like small, small uh, sort of individual turbines. We realized there is not that much wind in this certain area. Um, we tried uh, looking at geothermal. It was just too, too cost intrusive. And then we decided to look at just solar. 
Um, solar has become so more, much more affordable uh, in now times. So we're just, uh, we're giving a shot. We actually have solar panel already for our South Nation daycare that was done and implemented in 2014. So it powers 90% of our children's daycare. And that's the other thing, too, is we want to try and be good uh, educators to our younger generations moving forward and letting them know that we are, we are in a way, uh, reacting and, and, and providing renewable options for our future generations moving forward. Was it difficult to find something for the size of the building? Like, is there a lot of product available now to service what you were looking for? There is. Uh, quite surprisingly, I, within the last eight years, the solar industry sort of has changed. It's become more, more affordable, uh, better technology, uh, uh, in, innovative every year. And so I'm working with a company called uh, TerraTech Solutions, which is a, a very good, I was talking with some BC Hydro reps, and uh, they are one of the main leaders here in North Vancouver, and along with uh, our general contractor, Nikoon Contracting, which has helped leading the construction of this solar array project. So when is it going to be up and running? So we just we put up a fence yesterday. Uh, we have a time frame of mid to end of October. Uh, there's uh, because of the south-facing slope for administration office, it has to go through and be anchored through a number of different soil layers and into uh, the grade at the very bottom. So there's going to be uh, over 63 micropiles along the south-facing slope. That needs to be installed first, and then the solar panels start to click in later okay. on. Okay, so Dennis, how is this going to work then? Is it going to bank energy at all? Like if there's a really sunny day, will it store that energy for you? Yes. Well, we are, we will, we are going to be one of a few largest BC net metered uh, projects in the lower mainland, and we're also going to be the largest in North Shore. Uh, so what the goal is, is that the energy consumed uh, against the energy sort of created uh, with the BC net metering program. So if I if I end up making 2,000 kilowatt of energy per month, but we only use 1,000 kilowatts, that extra 1,000 kilowatt of energy will be back into the BC Hydro grid um, as a credit. And then say the month of October, we use double the heat. So that extra thousand will go back and pay back to that uh, that monthly charge of kilowatt energy. And do you feel, Dennis, like this is a big test, right? If this is successful, do you think other people, other groups, other developers might look to this? I, I 100% believe so. Uh, you know, I think the time is now that we need to really think about our future and be leaders now so that, like, I have two young kids and I also have lots of many other cousins and nieces and nephews of my nation that, you know, like we as, as, as a nation and especially with the guidance of our leadership, our chief and council, um, you know, we are always thinking seven generations behind us. And so whether it be, you know, I don't know, there's different other renewables too, right? You can have district heating, uh, geothermal, depending on what kind of project you're working. But this is something that we just really wanted to complement our administration. Uh, you know, it's uh, pretty much known you know, it equates to offsetting 120 tons of CO2, uh, carbon sequestered by 128 acres of forest. If we all started moving to electric cars, it would be able to charge over 1 million kilometers. So Amazing. if our staff start changing to electric cars, that solar pad, the solar panels will be able to charge the car while they're working. Now, Dennis, when you put it all that way, doesn't it make you wonder, why hasn't somebody done this before? <laughs> I, I, you know, I just, uh, I'm really fortunate that I was able to take this project on through economic development to help to lead the guidance of our leadership. 
And I'm just glad that it's going through. Uh, you know, there's a lot of exciting things because I have a great connection with the North Shore School District. A lot of my kid, a lot of my nephews and nieces and my kids go to the local elementary schools. And this is a prime chance for us to educate the young ones, um, especially it being the largest in the North Shore. I think this will be a great tool for kids to take little school trips to go walk around and look at the design and learn about renewables, learn yeah. about decarbonization, lessening our carbon footprint. I love that. How big is the building, by the way? The building or the, the administration office, uh, well, there's two components of it, but I, would, I don't know exactly the square footage because I wasn't a part of that project. I just saw some of the designs, and then I saw that there was a connection, a conduit line. And I was like, what's that for? And they're like, oh, that's for the solar project. And I was like, wow. I just bought an electric car myself over uh, almost coming up two years. And I just sort of, I asked my director if I can, if I can help make this project come to fruition. And he said, yes, go do it. And so here we are right now. I was all excited. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I even drove by yesterday and I was like, oh, what, what happened? Oh, it's just fences right now. Yeah. But, <laughs> You're yeah. getting there, Dennis. I can't wait yeah. until it's up and running and you can tell us all about it. So, Dennis, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. And good luck. That is Dennis Thomas Hunok. He's the Senior Business Development Manager with the Tsleil-Waututh Nation Economic Development Office. They have an administration building over on the North Shore, and they are just breaking ground, as Dennis pointed out, on the largest ground mount solar project in the Lower Mainland that will completely power that building and bank power for them as well. He says solar has come a long way. They're very excited, as you can tell about that project. I can't wait to hear more about it when it's up and